So what's been happening today? It's a question you perhaps may have asked yourself. What are we doing? What's going on here? It's a kind of curious situation really, isn't it? To put oneself in to a room that seems to be remarkably full of people. To put oneself into a retreat that seems to have a rather long schedule from early in the morning till well into the evening. We are engaged with this process, this experience of being alive. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to be alive, to be engaged in this process, in this journey, rather than simply to be carried blindly along by the momentum of our circumstance, our inner habits and patterns, the pressures and demands we experience from outside of ourselves. What does it mean to really engage with this? to come to it in a way that is fresh, that is new, that is alive right here. It can be that it's very easy to live our life without really stopping, without really taking time to to question or to consider what is most important, what do I feel truly touched by or moved by in my life, to feel the urgency and the pressure of demands and the, the sense of being carried by that momentum by that busyness, if we stop and consider that we don't necessarily know, we don't necessarily have a, a blueprint or a model for life, we're not given a set of instructions that tell us how to do it, we might usefully understand from that that we're in a process of exploring and experimenting. a process of seeking to learn, to discover and understand for ourselves what is truly wholesome, what is truly beneficial. And that we have very, very few guarantees in this life. In fact, so close to none as to be almost indistinguishable from none. The only guarantee we have, and it's not a particularly useful one in this context, it seems, if we're looking for guarantees. The only guarantee we have in this life is that it comes to an end. We're born without necessarily having chosen to be. At least I certainly don't remember making a plan, deciding I think I'll turn up on this particular green-looking planet where it seems to rain quite regularly and occasionally it's sunny as well. I don't don't remember making a plan in that regard. And likewise, as we didn't plan to arrive here in the way that we have, we don't necessarily get to plan our departure from this life. We don't know necessarily when it will be or how it will be. 
when that should take place. And just in this last week, I received news of two people I knew who their life came to an end in this last week. People I knew and was fond of, but not that close, so that it was something too painful or difficult to to encounter. But there's that reminder that comes to us when we see, when we hear that kind of message. Sometimes it comes to us very directly, the sense of life is not forever. How does that affect us if we let that in, if we take that on board? We're not here forever. And not only that, but while we are here, we can't seem to make our experience be the way we want it. We can't seem to get our mind and our body to do what we wish it would. So what makes sense in this situation? What makes a difference in this reality that we find ourselves in? Being on a retreat like we are here together, what can start to happen is that we feel more deeply, more keenly, more directly our life. We start to sense it in a way that has a certain weightiness or impact perhaps upon us in a way that we might not always recognize or be open to the touch of. That we can sometimes feel compelled or content to just skim on the surface of things. Going through our days one after another. And then sometimes when we come on a retreat we kind of stop. We notice how, how life is a is a more rich and a more full thing than we've imagined or remembered when we're in the busyness of our life. How the even the very fact or the apparent fact of time becomes something fluid. And sometimes we see how slowly it moves when we're waiting for something to come to an end. How the last five minutes of the sitting, when we've decided we've had enough and we're just waiting for the bell, somehow seems as long if not longer than the previous 40. And we think, what does that mean? That five minutes could be such a long period of time. Or, as some people experience and report, we might find suddenly the period of time just moves so quickly and it's disappeared. It's slipped through our fingers, as it were. Maybe in a way that feels sweet and light. Maybe in a way that we wonder, where did that go? What happened? Where was I when that hour took place? So what do we do with this experience? What do we do with this situation? The habit, the tendency can be often to to look at it and think about it, wonder why it's like this and wonder what we can do about it. Particularly with regard to the things that are happening, the things that we experience. A lot of what happens on the first day of retreat is we actually start to get what our life is. We start to feel it. We start to sense it. And often what we feel, what we get, isn't what we were actually hoping to be getting or to be feeling. What we encounter at times is our body that's not at ease. Sometimes there's pain or there's tiredness or there's agitation in the body. We can encounter also at times our mind, restless, busy, reactive, We notice 
dullness and heaviness or agitation and unsettledness. We can also at times encounter feelings that are difficult, sadness or fear, longing or loneliness can arise quite naturally as experiences that we encounter in life. Anything we encounter in our life, we can and probably will encounter in our retreat. Because our retreat is a window into our life. It's a a way and a place in which we can look deeply into life. To see it for what it is. Equally to understand what it is not. And then really to live in accordance with what it is. And to let go of the attempt to live something that it isn't. One of the interesting things that arises pretty regularly is the, the sense or the thought that what's happening should be different than it, the way that it is. And this is a, a regular feature of our mental activity. The sense of what's going on here shouldn't be happening. Has anybody had a thought? I know some of you have because you've told me about them in the small group. But just in terms of the question, have you today had any thoughts that suggested that what's happening shouldn't be happening. And it's remarkable how convinced we can be of that. Like, it really shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't be feeling tired. I had a good night's sleep. My mind shouldn't be racing. I'm trying to be calm and peaceful. My body should be able to stretch a little bit further. Shouldn't it? And often we don't question that. We just assume that we know. We're we're so convinced by our own argument so convinced that we don't even look at it. And what we assume is that there's something wrong with the world. There's a problem out there. And that the resolution or the solution to our life will be to fix it. To fix the situation. To get it to be the way we think it should be. To get it to be the way we want it to be. And we can put a remarkable amount of energy into that process. A remarkable amount of time and resources and hope. Invested in that possibility. And we might recognize ourselves in the, the story of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a uh, a Sufi wise man and also a fool, it would seem. Though one wonders if perhaps his foolishness is an invitation for us to see our own. We can, If we reflect on our life, we see how much there's a sense of looking for satisfaction, looking to get things the way we want them to be. And there's a story of Nasruddin where one day he's sitting in the village square And there's a large pile of chilies in front of him. He's picking them up and eating them one at a time. His eyes are running, his nose is streaming, his face is flushed bright red. And he seems to be in some considerable distress as he's eating these chilies. And a couple of his friends come up and say, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He says, as he pops another one into his mouth, I'm eating these chilies. And his whole body is racked and shaken with the intensity of the experience. And it's clearly very painful to him. 
And his friends say, Mullah, we can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? And he responds with a smile through the tears. I'm hoping to find a sweet one. (laughs) That sense of hope that we bring, there's something quite innocent and lovely about it. That hope that just around the corner things are going to get to be the way that we want them to be. Suddenly it's all going to sort itself out. Our body's going to be comfortable, our mind's going to be calm, the weather's going to be sunny from here on in, and ah, finally we'll be able to rest. If we look at what's been going on for the last years or decades of our life, what we'll see is that hope keeps popping up. Constantly we reinvest in situations and circumstances and experiences in the hope that the next something, somewhere, someone will be what brings this seeking to an end. And yet probably you're here because to some extent you realize that most of the things in the world can't bring lasting satisfaction. This is something that spiritual teachings point to. The experiences of life in and of themselves are inherently a mixed bag. And there's no way around it. Sometimes things are delightful. And sometimes they're really difficult. And we all get a mixture of that, which is what life is. Or certainly that's what life includes. But... The way we tend to relate to that, rather than seeing, oh, this is how it is, what easily happens is we start to feel frustrated with it. We feel angry with it. We look for something or someone to blame. Sometimes we blame ourselves. Feel like it's something we're doing wrong. Sometimes we blame another or a situation. We can get quite frustrated and angry, it seems, with the the experience of life feeling that it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And what happens when we do that? It's like we end up in a collision with our life. We experience life as something that's somehow not working or not right. There's a profound dissatisfaction in that. And also there can be a a sense of of conflict and of struggle that's so wearying, so frustrating. And and leads to a a sense of having to fight, having to battle, having to wrestle with our life. There's a... A circumstance or a situation that took place, uh, it's about 10 years ago now, that I find very instructive. Actually, it's 12 years ago now that actually happened. Um, and I'd like to read you this. It's a transcript of a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. It took place in October 1995. And it was released by the Chief of Naval Operations and. Yes, in October 1995. It begins with a communication from the American ship. It says, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. 
There's a response from the Canadians. It says, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans respond, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the Canadians respond, no, I say again, you divert your course. And I kind of wonder, is this a situation that we're familiar with? Is this something we encounter in our life where it happens like this? Because what happens next is kind of interesting. The communication is printed in capital letters, which it's kind of like suggests it's being shouted, I guess. The Americans respond, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. And it's like, you know, when things don't go the way we want it, we can get quite angry and we kind of willing to engage in a fight, it would seem. Now, the Canadians' response, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. And it's kind of delightfully humorous as a circumstance, isn't it? And yet if we reflect on what that means about how we live our lives, so much of the time we're kind of putting this pressure on, placing demands upon the world, upon others, upon ourselves, to fit in with our plans, to get out of our way, to be what I want it to be. And yet life is the way it is. It can't be different than it is any more than the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship. That's really obvious. That's really clear. But what does that mean for how we live? What does it mean to not demand our life, in effect, get out of our way? We understand when we hear the story that, oh, there's a misunderstanding going on here. So long as we think that this thing's somehow out of place and it need, needs to move on so my path can be straightforward and clear, then we're bound for conflict. And if we don't work that out, we're likely to get into a shipwreck. Sometimes life feels a bit like that, I think. We realise so many times we've just run into our life because we haven't really had the time or the space to see what's happening. And so what a retreat offers us is this opportunity to begin to see what's happening. How is it that I somehow end up running into my life? Or feeling that my life has run into me? Has somehow got in my way? so interesting what happens when we come and sit and walk and engage in the yoga practice and the different forms that we use on the retreat. Do you notice how there's a sense of constantly sort of kind of making do or putting up with it, waiting until the next thing, waiting for something, hoping that sometime soon it's going to be better than this. 
Again, it's something that people talk about often. And talking about the experience of the sittings, sort of like that last period of the sitting, it's like waiting for the end, waiting, waiting for when that we can go and do some walking meditation. You know, <sighs> can't wait till the walking meditation. And of course, you get to the walking meditation, you go outside somewhere nice. This is pretty, nice trees, grounds, sunny, or you know, pleasant rain, whatever. You walk back and forth a few times, and you think, oh, this is not particularly interesting, not particularly exciting. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You know. Probably the meditation, the sitting meditation, that's the real thing. And then we can't wait to get back and do the next sitting. It's like, God, oh, I hope this walking will be over soon. And then we get to the sitting, it's just the same as the last one. Body aches, mind's fuzzy or all over the place or falling asleep or thinking about 200 you know, different things at once. We think, oh, the yoga, the afternoon, the yoga. Yeah, that'll be it. We get to the yoga. And it's like... Oh, this is really nice. It's really relaxing. We get to stretch and move and open. And then it's like, but, you know, aren't we going to do something more? So just this one movement or these two postures? You know, I'd like to do something dynamic. I'd like to get up and, you know, get my blood going. And all these ways in which our, our thought process keeps coming in, commenting on, evaluating, and inevitably finding a problem with what's going on. What would it be to stop believing the stories that your mind keeps telling you about what should be different than it is? What would that mean for you? What would happen if we would just start to introduce an element of uncertainty like, hmm, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have to be different than this. Maybe the next thing isn't going to be necessarily that much better or that much worse. It's just going to be what it is. What would happen if we started to be really interested in this process of what we're doing with our experience? What we're creating in this rather simple situation that we have here. What would happen? Because that quality of interest is something really important here. It's easy to come into the retreat and think, this is a place I'm going to get some nice experiences. I'm going to get some nice meditations, do some nice yoga, have some nice feelings, hopefully be calm and peaceful at the end. And all of that, of course, is possible. But if we come into it with that sense of trying to get something, trying to get something, we tend to just replay the old habit, the old pattern of hoping for satisfaction and being disappointed. One of the senior teachers in our Insight Meditation learners, Jack Cornfield, he once spoke of meditation retreats. He says, people kind of think of it a bit like the sort of going to the store and all the nice things you could get at the store, like a shopping trip. He said, you know, this is not a shopping trip. Coming on a retreat is like going to the dump. <laughs> it's a place where you go to let go and get rid of the things you don't need to carry around anymore. You know, we have this idea that if we could just get more and better things, possessions, experiences, then we'd be happy. But for all that we've got so far, if that hasn't brought happiness, why are we convinced that more might bring happiness? Because true happiness does not derive or arise 
from the experiences that we have, from the things that we own or possess, from the particulars of what happens. Happiness arises from the way in which we meet it, from coming into a wholehearted, conscious and caring connection with our life, with each moment, with each experience, whatever it might be. So what would it be for us to really embrace what we have here? To really wholeheartedly take this on, this experience of being alive. All of what it encompasses, all of what it entails. And see that perhaps it's our way of conceiving and our way of perceiving, the way we think about and the way we interpret our experience that creates the sense of dissatisfaction, of frustration, of struggle, of conflict. That it's not <clears throat> it's not inherent, it's not necessarily there in some ultimate, absolute or real way. It's something that arises out of the interaction between our habitual ways of perceiving and reacting and the experience of being alive. But it's not bound to be so. It's like one of the things that sometimes happens is we can feel like there's no space. You know, there's no space in our life. And we tend to really become aware of and attuned to and focus on all the things that seem to fill the space up. The work and the the social obligations and you know taking care of one's livelihood and family and all of that can feel like so much. Or we come on a retreat and we think, oh, it'll be spacious and peaceful and calm and there'll be plenty of room. And we come and we see as people file into the hall on the first evening, gosh, there's quite a few people here. And even when there's quite a few people, there's more coming. And we finally arrive and we look around and it feels like, gosh, this room is really full. Has anyone had the thought that this room is really full? Maybe even the thought this room is too full. Like, you can't get this many people into here. And it's true, we've probably got pretty close to the maximum number you can fit into this room for what we're doing here. But in terms of the room being full, probably, and you could just look around and check, you know, does it look like it's full? Reasonably full, sure. But the room is completely empty in terms of people for the top, probably, is it two-thirds or three-quarters of the room? There's absolutely no one in it, is there? I mean, look, look around, what do you see? It's mostly empty, this room. But that's not what we usually notice. What we notice is where all the things are, where all the people are, where all the things that seem to crowd our space turn up. It's a bit like that with our mind. The mind can seem really full. Mind can seem really busy. And the sense is, I've got to somehow get rid of all these things that are in my mind. I've got to stop my mind thinking. I've got to stop my mind reacting. And when we come to it in that way, from the conclusion that there's already all these things that shouldn't be here, when we come to it in that way, the very urge and the very attempt to make space, to get rid of what's there, becomes something else that takes up the space. Becomes another 
experience that, that's actually weighing upon us, that's binding or limiting our experience. And so while we're asked to become aware of that sense of fullness or that sense of busyness, we're not asked, and it doesn't really help, to somehow push it away, to reject it or to judge it. What we're asked is to begin to contemplate it, to begin to look and see what's going on here. What's happening? Because the moment we stop resisting the experience that's there, already there's more space. The moment we stop demanding that things be different, already things are different. And this is something that we can learn to do. We can't control the experience itself, but the way that we meet it, the way we engage with it, we can transform. So what what enables that to be possible? What enables that to take place? I think it's really important that we allow ourselves to be in contact with the sense of caring we have for our life. A sense of deep yearning for happiness for peace, for well-being, that, that is there within us all, that, that moves us in our life. But in being in contact with that sense of caring, that sense of aspiration for our well-being, for our unfoldment, for our growth, and however we understand or conceive that, at the same time as we have that sense of of caring, to also recognize that the way we go about seeking to fulfill it or to bring it about is often bound by misunderstanding. What we talk about is blindness in this traditional ignorance, that we don't really understand how things are. And one of the things we don't understand that we don't see clearly, is this fact of experience being out of our control, being not necessarily as we wish it to be. And so long as we're caught in a struggle with that, we cannot discover, we cannot see beyond and through that whole appearance, that whole construction and configuration that appears to define our life, that appears to define what is possible for us, and yet ultimately does not. So in the meditation and in the practice as we go through the day, what we're learning to do is to bring ourselves into contact with life in a fresh way, in a new way. And what this involves is three primary qualities that are really helpful 
that are really beneficial and transformative in one's life. And the first quality is that sense of collectedness or gatheredness or focus. That what we encounter to begin with for most of us coming into practice, into retreat, is just how scattered and reactive our mind is. And in that sense of scatteredness, it's like we're pulled in so many directions so quickly, so often, that it's hard to ever really get a clear sense of where we are or what is happening. It's a little bit like if we were to go into a dark room with a torch and trying to navigate our way through various obstacles while the torch we were sort of swinging on a piece of string to try and show where we could go. Imagine having a torch swinging around on a piece of string and you'd see something and then you'd see something else, you'd see something else, but you never really see clearly what's going on. When the mind is constantly going in different directions, it's a bit like that. So we, we gather it, we come back again and again and again. It's this process of training the mind. Doing so gently, doing so with a sense of kindness and compassion for oneself. And as you do so, what you'll see and what you're finding, I'm sure already, is that that capacity for steadying and focusing and gathering the mind begins to show, begins to deepen. And so like over time, it's like then we can hold the torch and direct it. We can point it. We can allow ourselves to look and see what's going on here. What's actually happening? This quality of focus, of gatheredness, of heart and mind. And it's like there's some remarkable potency and power that we have access to. That the the power of the mind as it gathers is remarkable. It's a bit like with light. When light is dissipated, like before you have a torch, if you take or if you have a torch and you take the lens off it and it's just a light source, it's kind of diffuse, it doesn't really show that much. When you put a lens on it and you gather it and focus it, suddenly there's a clear beam. and You can see something, you can pick something out. You harness that capacity. And if one were to develop that further, to focus it in the way that a laser beam does, that capacity of focusing light ultimately gives it the capacity to, to penetrate through what appears to be solid. And that light, there's such sort of, you know, light, it's such a, such a, there's like, there's not much to it, is there, when you think of light? You can't really get hold of it, it doesn't seem to be solid or substantial. And yet if you concentrate it enough, it makes holes in things. Something interesting about that. Something remarkable about that. The mind, likewise, this capacity for attention, for awareness, for mindfulness, it seems quite sort of light and a little bit elusive. And yet as we gather it, as we collect it, it's remarkably potent. And this is something that we're learning to do. And as we're doing this, we're also beginning to see that in this capacity or in this willingness to connect with experience, to be present, to see it, what often arises for us is the sense of, no, I don't want this. I don't like this. It's not what I wanted or what I asked for. You know, my knee hurts. I don't want to have a painful knee. And sometimes we react and we get afraid. Now my knee, it's aching, it's hurting. You know, and what's happening is some unpleasant sensations that we don't like. But it's, you know, we start thinking, oh gosh, what if, 
you know, this all goes horribly wrong. I shouldn't have done this meditation. You know, I'm going to end up being stretched out of the meditation hall. The ambulance will take me to hospital. I'll never walk again. And there's this whole story that builds up. And in it, there's a sense of, no, I just don't want this experience. But in fact, it's just something unpleasant. Now, there is sometimes a place for saying that's enough. That's, in terms of a painful experience, it's too much. And we need to stop and say, okay, I need to change my posture. I need to make some adjustment here. And that's fine to do that. But notice how often we react before we've ever even considered what is useful or what's possible here. And often in the reaction we contract and tighten. And that sense of resisting or rejecting our experience. There's a whole dimension to the training that goes on in our practice, which is about learning to to open our hearts, to embrace that aspect of experience which is not easy to bear. Those particular elements within our life, within our body, our heart and our mind, that are painful to us, that are scary to us. And to see that if we can open to them, if we can embrace them, we don't have to be in conflict with them. And they don't have to mean we have, or that we can't be connected, we can't be in relationship to our life. Because that's the real power that difficult experience has, it seems to have at least, over us. The sense that if this experience is here, I cannot be here. I must somehow leave. And we leave in the stories of our mind. We get caught in projections and fantasies and reactions. But to see that we can actually be with more than perhaps we've imagined. We can learn to stay open, to relax, to bring sensitivity and caring and compassion to those places which are tender in our experience in our body and in our hearts. And there's a sense of a softening and an opening that takes place in this practice as we go through the days and through the sittings and the walkings and the yoga and the mealtimes and everything else. A sense of just coming into contact again and again with our experience. We see that that willingness to contact it, to touch it, and to be touched by it, there's a a gathering and a focus of the mind that happens. But there's also a gentle, natural and organic opening of the heart. And that allows us to come closer. That allows us to touch more deeply and more intimately not just the tenderness of life, but equally its sweetness and its beauty, which is there for us, which when we aren't willing to be there for the difficult or the challenging, what happens is we also lose touch with the nourishment the sweetness and the beauty that is around us, that is within us. Because we can't push away just one thing. When we push away, we push everything away. And in effect, we push ourselves away. We disconnect. We separate from our life. And then we live in the dissatisfaction of that separation, somehow trying to close the gap, trying to bridge the gap, not understanding how it came to be born of our unwillingness to receive our life as it is. And so the sense of, of willingness, of acceptance, of allowing, of receptivity, that has a certain warmth and a kindliness in it, in fact. This is something that we learn to bring to our experience. 
And sometimes the place where we need to learn and where we do learn is in exactly the place where it's the most difficult, where we really don't want to open. We don't want to be with it. And yet we have no choice because we see there's nowhere to go. We can't leave this body or this mind or this heart behind. This is where we live our life. And we don't need to leave it behind. We simply need to understand it with wisdom. And so the third excuse me. <coughs> the third quality that we're seeking to cultivate, develop, to bring in this practice, in this process. As we become more focused and gathered, as we have a sense of starting to open, receive our experience, there's also this quality of curiosity, of openness, of interest that we are invited and encouraged to bring to what's happening. The sense of of not presuming we already know our life, our experience, that we can sometimes when we're sitting there and we're watching the breath and it comes in goes out and it's like, yeah, okay, ho-hum, another breath, so what? You know, we can take it really for granted, can't we, sometimes, sitting there. It's like, oh, it's not that exciting. Until, of course, it should be we have the opportunity to contemplate whether we can get the next one. You know, if our head was underwater, suddenly the next breath would become a remarkably fascinating thing. And yet we, we, we forget that, we lose that, that sense of, gosh, how amazing. And just even just the fact that it happens. Have you noticed that the breathing happens by itself? You know, you don't have to make it happen. The breath just comes and goes. It's actually a re- remarkably fortunate thing that it happens by itself, that we don't need to pay attention to it, because otherwise if we spaced out for more than three minutes, we'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? Like though, on the other hand, it might be a lot easier to pay attention to our breath if we knew that we had to to keep it working. But we don't. It's like there's this life unfolding. And what we're asked is to meet it, but to see what's this? Like that quality of curiosity that one sees perhaps most obviously in, in young children when they encounter something new, like a, a little creature or something like that. And what, what is it, that sense of like open-eyed engagement where I don't know what this is, but I'm really willing to look at it. I'm really willing to see it. This is an attitude that we're asked to bring to our life, to our experience. Because so far as we believe or imagine that we already know what this is, there's a way in which we're somewhat distant from it. We're, some, we're not able to really touch and be touched by it fully. So this quality, this curiosity, this interest, this openness allows us to begin to see beyond the familiar and habitual perceptions that we make or that we have about our life that tend to bind us into the sense of limitation, the sense of dissatisfaction, the sense of struggle that arises when we live in that, in that sense of certainties, of knowing our life through our mind, when our life is so much greater than our mind and cannot be known by it in any ultimate way, in any absolute way. 
So learning to connect, learning to be present, to be really wholeheartedly here. This is a simple undertaking in one sense, and yet perhaps the most challenging or the most demanding thing we might do with our lives. To really wholeheartedly embrace what is true, what is here. To be willing to learn from our life. To be awakened by our life. And to see that the sense of connection, the sense of being touched and touch by and touching our life has something that takes us more and more deeply into this remarkable and mysterious unfoldment, this precious and beautiful and tender, sensitive thing we call being alive. And that this journey itself and what we can discover through it is the basis of a deeper satisfaction than any of the experiences we encounter, any of the things that we might obtain, any of what happens in terms of events. So while we're here, we have a really precious opportunity to discover a depth of peace and satisfaction that is beyond our mind, that is beyond what we can conceive, but which we can know, which we can understand and experience for ourselves which we can awaken to, that is not somewhere else, that is not something else, that is not other than or apart from what's actually here, but which we can only discover when we wholeheartedly give ourselves to being here, when we wholeheartedly give ourselves to the truth of our life as it is. And so we cultivate this capacity to do so, to really be here, to be gathered and focused, open and receptive, curious and interested to see what may be revealed in this life. I'd like to finish with the words of uh, Ajahn Chah, who was a much-loved and wonderful teacher from Thailand and died in the um, early 1990s. He once said, and really encompassing the whole of this teaching, in a way, in these words, he said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quiet in all kinds of surroundings. All kinds of wonderful and rare creatures will appear. And you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many 
Many wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Your mind will become clear like a still forest pool. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.